no, 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 you don't have to leave the person you were behind. You're going to carry her forward with you. It's just, you're not alone anymore. So it's not that you have to have this break between your life and your work. You can integrate it. You have to find a way craft-wise to do it. And that is the big challenge. And I think that is why I love this book so much is I'm in awe of what she's able to do to integrate all of those parts of her life in these poems. Book Society Podcast, here we are. My guest today is Maggie Smith. She is the award-winning author of Good Bones, The Well Speaks of Its Own Poison, Lamp of the Body, and the national bestseller, Keep Moving, Notes on Loss, Creativity, and Change. In 2011, she was the recipient of a Creative Writing Fellowship from the National Endowments of the Arts. Smith also received several individual excellence awards from the Ohio Arts Council, two Academy of American Poets prizes, a Pushcart Prize, which is a big deal, ladies and gentlemen, and fellowships from the Sustainable Arts Foundation. And I could keep going. Anywhere good poems are available, Maggie Smith's poems are also available. She's an amazing poet, and listeners of the podcast know that I don't always have time to read the author's books, but in this case, I read your book. It is just fantastic. So I'm really excited to talk to you. The book that Maggie Smith chose for us today is The Life by Carrie Fountain. Carrie Fountain is another brilliant poet, and I have had the best week this week because I've read three books this week. I've read Goldenrod, I've read Carrie Fountain, and I've read a book by Megan O'Giblin called God, Human, Animal, Machine. All three of you are women. All three of you are brilliant. All three of you are approximately the same generation, which is to say my generation, and you're all approximately Midwestern. We are going to do more poetry on this podcast just so I can get my blood pressure down. Can you tell us why you picked this book? Because it's excellent. First of all, thanks for having me. I loved this book. Carrie's a friend and we became friends via her previous collection of poems, which was called Instant Winner. And it was one of those books where I remember exactly where I was when I read it. You know, those experiences where something just strikes you so hard, whether it's a song or a film and you remember the theater you were in or whatever the case may be. And I just remember I was sitting in a doctor's office waiting room, reading Instant Winner and just saying, I think out loud, probably to the chagrin of people sitting around me, oh my God. Oh my God. And just dog-earing every page and underlining things and bracketing things and starring the margins and making my own notes. And so I became a super fan of Carrie Fountain from her second book. And then I went back and read her first book. And so when this one came out, I was so excited to read it. And it feels to me like a continuation of that last one, but it also goes into such incredible places. The epigraph, the quote at the beginning of the book is Rilke, and it's, but somewhere there is an ancient enmity between our daily life and the great work. Help me in saying it to understand it. Enmity or opposition, this idea that the great work we have to do and the sort of daily life we live are somehow at odds. And that push and pull between the big, big, immense existential themes in this book and then the daily life of like parenting small kids who want to put really messy glitter on their valentines or having to flush another goldfish. They live side by side and they kind of spark against each other, I think, in really interesting ways. One of the poems in here is, how has motherhood changed the way you write? And I want to ask you that question. How has motherhood changed the way you write? 
You know, motherhood has changed both the time I have to write and the material (laughs) I write down when I find the time. So I used to joke, especially when my kids were your kids' age, that I had no time to write poems and yet I had so much more material, which seemed deeply unfair because the sort of existential shift of becoming someone who lived in the world with some autonomy to being someone who lives in the world completely dependent upon other people's meals and naps and needs was huge. I don't even think we can overstate what it is to suddenly just be someone's lifeline in the world and to be so needed, constantly needed in a way that no adult really needs you. And so at first I had this block. I didn't write for a year after my daughter was born. And I think I had a fear of writing, to be frank, mommy poems. Like I thought, well, I've been writing these poems that are sort of looking at myth or looking at history and interrogating the self and thinking about religion. And so now this is the stuff of my life. How do I make quote unquote art from burp cloths and laundry and sleepless nights and a tooth coming in? Like, how do I do this and still do it like myself? And it took me a year to start writing poems again and feeling like I could do it my way. And poets like Carrie Fountain, poets like Brenda Shaughnessy and Sharon Olds and Beth Ann Fennelly, poets who were also parents, showed me the way. Like, no, 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 you don't have to leave the person you were behind. You're going to carry her forward with you. It's just you're not alone anymore. So it's not that you have to have this break between your life and your work. You can integrate it. You have to find a way craft-wise to do it. And that is the big challenge. And I think that is why I love this book so much is I'm in awe of what she's able to do to integrate all of those parts of her life in these poems. Wow. So you just did the thing that I noticed when I read these books that poetry does is that as a professional artistic person, I sort of fly around with these vague notions in my head that I can't quite articulate. And when I read poetry like this, like Carrie's, it's like saying these things that I've not been able to pull out of the ether, but I felt. And that's really how I felt when I read the whole book is I've had none of these experiences, but I've also had all of these experiences. That's poetry, like the ability to articulate the thing that even if you haven't had that specific experience, you've had something so closely adjacent to it that you have that sort of aha moment and you see yourself in the poem or conversely, something you find in that poem makes it impossible for you not to carry it with you back into the world. And so you can't look at a tree or you can't have a lunch with your child or you're feeding the goldfish or whatever the thing is, is never really the same again, because you're now looking at it through the lens of having read that poem. And so these things are things we carry with us. What do you think poetry is? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. What's the Williams quote that it's a machine made of words? Can I default to that? Because that sounds smart. (laughs) It's funny. A poem is sort of one of those things where it's like, it's hard to define, but you know it when you see it. And as someone who's been working on a lot of nonfiction and also writing and reading in a space that is straddling the boundary between genres, sometimes I think, well, genre exists so that we know where to shelve books. And so publicists know how to frame something in order to sell it. But 
does it really matter if a thing is a prose poem or a very short story or a flash essay? Yes, many poems have lines, but some of them don't. So once we start thinking about what makes a poem, there are as many exceptions as there are rules. I think the one thing that all poems have in common is the focus on language. Sometimes it's more important how the thing is said than necessarily what is quote unquote happening, which is not what one would say about fiction. Sure. Yeah. I think about this a lot about how much media, like the medium in which ideas are carried affect the messages. And what you said about genre being sort of an organizational method is really true. In music, one of the things I think about is that the fact that I wrote a piece of music is a convention. The fact that I signed my name to it, I mean, 20 or 30 people worked on it. I'm the one who gets to take credit because I came up with some seed that we think is the piece of music, but it's not at all clear where that line starts and stops when you're recording musicians. So, wow, interesting. All right, let's jump into some reading, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. I thought maybe I would read the last poem, which has one of the best endings for any poem and therefore any book ever, in my humble opinion. And the poem is called The Spirit Asks. This is the life with fried eggs. This is the life with Pyrex dishes of many sizes, none of which I purchased myself. This is the life with the boy who'd eat chicken nuggets for every meal and the girl who'd asked four times this week if she can please clean the cat's ears again with a Q-tip. They are dirty. No, they're not. This is the life with lives in it so small we have to put up a sign on the front door. Don't forget the fish or we'd forget the fish. This life, sometimes I feel myself so deep inside it, blessed so painfully, so painfully blessed, pushing into it, pushing, and yet I cannot get through. I want too much. I want a God who will save us all and a God who will feel the little heat coming off the candle I lit in the grotto. A God in heaven, but a God here too, you know? I want a God like the one I tell my children about, the one who loves everyone. Even Trump? Well, I guess so, yes, even Trump. Please, give me a God that exists. That's all I'll ever want. And the Spirit says, okay. And I say, really? And the Spirit says, yeah, probably. Yeah. Man, that's a great poem. Ugh. What about that poem stuck out to you? First of all, I love the anaphora. So it just as like a poet and a poetry geek, the use of anaphora or the repetition of the same phrase or words at the beginning of sentences, this is the life, this is the life, the life, the life, the life. It feels like just the right exit for a book called The Life. But I think what I find so charming about this poem and many of the poems in this book is how these big existential ideas butt up against really conversational speech, like that little, you know, in the middle of the poem that, you know, if you brought this to workshop in graduate school or in a college classroom, maybe somebody would be like, I don't know, can you do that in a poem? Maybe you should take that out. It doesn't feel very poemy to have the speaker kind of speaking so casually to us as the reader, but I love that. And then the ending, that sort of dialogue back and forth between the sort of imagined spirit and the speaker of the poem. Yeah, you can have that. Probably. Yeah. The ambivalence at the end, I think is what I love. It's like reassuring, but not 
tied with a bow. Like it's not Pollyanna, everything's going to be okay, reassuring. Yeah, it's radical, really. I mean, this is the voice of God, for lack of a better term. And there's nowhere in the Christian Bible where God says probably. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've said this before on this podcast many times, but my religion is that there are things that I don't understand and will never understand. And that's just kind of where I leave it. I'm also in your church, apparently, which it's funny because I don't actually attend. So I haven't seen you passing the <laughs> dish. But yes, I am also there. So our God doesn't need money. Oh, perfect. Yeah, it's great. So the other thing I love about this poem that struck me just as you read it was that it starts with the simplest of things. It starts with Pyrex and fried eggs and ends with this exploration of what the divine means to her. Yeah. I mean, there are so many poems in this book that do that in film language, do like the extreme close up on like some tiny, tiny aspect of life that seems really mundane. And frankly, like, really, you'd write a poem about this. And then they do this big, big pullback on a crane where you can see the whole town and even beyond the town, like the world and even beyond the world, the universe. And to manage to do that in a poem that fits on one spread is kind of miraculous. Yeah, that is one of the things about poetry that I love. And songs are the same way where in a musical, the golden rule is that you sing a song when it is the fastest, most efficient way to express what the character is feeling. If they can say it, just say it from Oklahoma, like, oh, what a beautiful morning. You could have him praise how much he loves Oklahoma and the history of Oklahoma. That could be a 15 minute soliloquy, or it can be a three minute song. This actually is probably going to impact the way I watch musicals because it's always troubled me how people are just doing things and then suddenly someone starts singing. I find it very jarring. So now I'm going to apply that logic to it and maybe it will make more sense to me. Think about Alan Menken, one of the greatest ever, who writes all the Disney ones, which as a mother, you've seen all of them. But the thing that he's the master of that I love so much that he does is the scene set song where two minutes and you're in a completely alien world, but you feel like totally oriented. Beauty and the Beast is a great example. And then the me that nobody knows song. We could talk for hours and I would not learn more about you than if you just sang somewhere over the rainbow. So maybe that's what poetry is. Maybe a poem is the me that nobody knows song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. And it turns out that the me that nobody knows is somewhat universal, but it's really hard to get to. And that leads me to another question, which is poetry is so easy to read. And at the urging of a previous podcast guest who runs a poetry review, I wrote a poem and I write prose like fine. I thought, okay, I'm going to write this poem. And it was the hardest thing I ever wrote. And it took me about 10 times longer than I thought it would take. And it was completely different by the time I had finished it than what I had started out to write. So, well, then you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. If it feels harder than you expect, and it took you someplace you did not expect to go when you sat down to write, that is my process exactly. And it never gets any easier, which is the fun. I mean, honestly, if after 25 years or so of writing poems, if it was easy now, probably the same with music. If it suddenly became rote, became easy and going through the motions and it's like, yada, 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 here's the poem. I don't know that I would still do it because part of why I do it is that it's hard and there's a creative problem solving that has to happen where there's a gap between the thing I'm trying to say or articulate or describe or understand for myself and the thing that I've made. And revision is me trying to close that gap and close that gap. And sometimes I have to show it to other people to help me close that gap to get to the thing I know it can be when the thing I've made is 
a very janky MacGyvered version of the thing. I know it can be, but it might take me 10 years and 50 revisions to get there. That's amazing. And that is precisely the process of music. The way that I describe it is that if you think of like a line on a graph that sort of goes up and then plateaus and goes up and plateaus, the way I feel about my music and all of my art or whatever you want to call what I do is that I feel like I'm getting better. And then for a while, I feel like I'm not getting better. And the reason for this is very tangible when you're practicing music is what happens is your fingers are getting better. And then your ear starts to get better. So you're able to play all this stuff you couldn't play before. But then suddenly, there's more interesting things that you could play because your imagination has now eclipsed your ability. So maybe poetry is like that, too, because you're a master. I mean, you're better at writing poetry now than you were 25 years ago, I'm sure. Oh, God, I hope so. Yeah. I'm sure the people who were in my early workshops would probably be like, yeah, they're slightly improved. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I'm getting better at it. But also, you're right. My brain is doing other things. And my ear might be better. Like I might be able to be like, oh, yeah, obviously, if I break the line there, that's better. Or obviously, if I use this synonym for quiet, I'm going to get some slant rhyme off of this noun, which I wouldn't have had if I'd used that one word choice. It's easier to be critical about those choices, but every poem is still its own problem. And that poem is teaching me how to write it. And it might also slightly teach me how to write the next one a little bit better, but the current poem never solves the next poem's problem. That's not how it works. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice? Or not. I mean, I think I'd probably be on to some other thing because the joy is in the trying. Wow. You mentioned line breaks. You and Carrie Fountain both do these line breaks. They're probably common to current poetry, but... I'm not going to try to describe the line breaks in a podcast. Read the poems. You'll see them. But you do these line breaks in what must be specific and very thought out ways, but are not apparent upon a first reading. And I've heard both of you guys read your poetry and you don't read them with the line breaks often, or maybe you do sometimes. But can you just talk to me a little bit about line breaks and how you arrive at what's going to be in what stanza and how you're going to break a sentence? This is like the super geeky inside baseball stuff of poetry, which I love. But yeah, so there are basically like three different kinds of line breaks. Maybe most people would talk about two, and that's probably easier. And jammed lines are like the run-ons, where like the sentence keeps going, but the line ends. And so you have to go down to the next line to see what's happening in the sentence. So there's a suspension where the line is kind of just hanging there, and it's not completed. And then there's end stopped, which have some sort of punctuation. I mean, obviously a period is the most complete, but like a long dash or a comma or something else counts. And so I think line breaks are probably the things I fuss over the most when I'm working on a poem. And because I work mostly in free verse, I don't have a set rhyme scheme. I don't have a set meter. I don't have a set number of syllables per line. I get to end the line wherever I want and go down to the next one. And so a lot of the revision process is reading the poem aloud, trying to hear what I want to say in one breath. Sometimes that's what determines where the line ends. But oftentimes it's both rhythmic and for emphasis. So I think of a sentence as having sort of a horizontal energy, right? Like you start on the left-hand side of the page and you write to the right margin. And so the sentence is always moving horizontally. Well, a poem actually pulls down a page. So the line has a vertical movement. And so every time you break a line in a poem, you're taking that horizontal movement and sort of torquing it and 
breaking it and wrenching it and pulling the poem down the page. And so the last word in any line gets the most emphasis in the line because it's the place where you're sort of torquing the line and pulling the energy down in a different way, especially if it's in jammed and the sentence doesn't end there. And so whenever I'm looking at students' poems and I see like and or the or 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 nothing words on the last bit of line, I'm like, no, 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 no. That's where the power is. What is this poem about? How can you place a word at the end of a line that might give us a sort of whiff of the inner life of the poem? The word break at the end of a line is different from the word the. Carrie Fountain in this book does this so well, where sometimes there are even double meanings because you aren't sure about the part of speech of the word until you finish the sentence by carrying down to the next line. But it creates an extra pause before you carry down. And that's the thing we fuss over (laughs) in revision. It's incredibly effective. And I can tell, I mean, these all read beautifully, but I just could tell that there was some art to it. It's not random and it's clear that it's not random. And I did a little experiment with some of Carrie's poems of reading them aloud as if they were sentences and then reading them aloud with the line breaks. And sometimes it doesn't make a difference and sometimes it makes a big difference and it's two different meanings. It reminded me of, I think E.E. Cummings was sort of the master, really his shtick was punctuating things in a way that it could be read three different ways. Yeah, and using the field of the page and white space in a really interesting way. Something that we poets have in our toolbox that novelists don't necessarily have is the ability to sort of imprint reading instructions into a text. Carrie Fountain isn't here while I'm reading her book to be like, no, 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 I want you to pause there. No, 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 slow down. No, that's not what I mean by that. But by forming the poem on the page in a really specific way and building in white space and deciding how you want it to be read, you're helping the reader take it on their own and read it the way that you are reading it to yourself. Is poetry more of an auditory medium? Oh, I think so. I mean, I write for the page, but it's really meant to live in the air. It's called lyric poetry for a reason. It really is meant to live in the air. And I think one of the best ways to work on a poem initially and in revision is to read it aloud to yourself. It's hard to write without being able to hear it and test those words in the air because you can't see a tongue twister on the page, but you can sure hear when you've put a W word and an R word too close and it's almost impossible for you to say the line aloud. Yeah, fox and socks looks like just normal words (laughs) until you try to read it. (laughs) And then you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) Right. That's interesting. I like to do revisions or final-ish edits in coffee shops. And I'm wondering, why do you enjoy that? I have been self-employed working from home in this office for 11 years. So I'm by myself a lot. I have always liked the sort of being alone in public aspect of working at a coffee shop or even a bar. And typically I wear headphones. So I'm not actually talking to anyone. I really am alone, but I'm alone in public. And there's something about having a little bit of bustle around me and also not having my home around me, not having my refrigerator, not having the laundry buzzing to be switched over, not knowing there are dishes that need to be put in the dishwasher. It actually helps me focus to be in a place where I can't get sucked into other kinds of tasks, which working from home, I think we all know, especially over the past year or two, what that can do to oneself when you see things that you know you could accomplish, even if you have other things that you are supposed to be doing. (laughs) I feel the exact same way about 
sometimes you got to just get out of the house. I also found that even with headphones on, there's still distractions. And if I've done my job as a writer, the writing is loud enough that I can still pay attention to it, even though I can sort of hear someone's conversation over there. That's how I know I feel like, okay, now I'm ready to share this with someone. Yeah. If you're boring yourself in a coffee shop, that's probably not a good sign. It's like, okay, so this needs some more work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two things that you said that are totally parallel with music. One of them is notation. Music notation is so incredibly specific and just a line here or a dash there will completely change the way that a player plays it. And you really need to think about their psychology and how they're looking at it as they play the music. It's a specific job. The other thing is, as you're writing a piece of music, you have to make sure that there's something for the listener to grab onto at every moment. There's no room for filler. A poem or a piece of writing, the conceit is that someone is reading it from start to finish. With a piece of music, someone might come in right in the middle of it and decide whether they ever want to hear your music again based on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Although one of the things I love about poems and this book and others is particularly for those of us who have divided attention or short attention spans, it's like I can dip into a book of poems and read two poems and then set it down. And then three days later, I can pick up that same book and read two other poems. And I don't have to remember who the characters are, what happened. If I start reading a novel or something and I lose track of it and then find it in a bag that I haven't carried I have to start over because I don't know what's happening. Did I read this? This doesn't even feel familiar. Poems, I think, I love reading a book start to finish because I know that's how the poet crafted it. So it's like a mixtape. They really did take the time to think about the transition between poem one and poem two and poem two and poem three. So I like to honor that and have my first read be chronological. But then after that, all bets are off. I can do whatever I want, just like I can with a record. If I want to listen to side B, on repeat for four days and forget side A exists, I can do that because I bought it and it's mine. <laughs> I love that. There's something beautiful about the fact that someone could discover a page of your book in a thousand years and still get something out of it. Yeah, it can exist in isolation, at least the individual poem. And they do. Usually by the time a book is published, the individual poems have been published, many of them in journals and magazines and have lived out in the world sometimes for years before being collected in book form. So they've had their own small lives alone, and then they get to have a sort of bigger life with their brothers and sisters together. This discussion with Maggie Smith was produced in conjunction with the Miami Book Fair, which is the best place, the biggest gathering of authors and ideas in the country. Maggie Smith is going to be a virtual guest. I'm going to be there in person. It's going to be really fantastic. You can learn more at miamibookfair.com. And tune in next week to hear the end of my discussion with Maggie Smith. We're going to be talking about her book, Goldenrod. It's awesome. Booksocietypod.com. That's our website. You can email us. You can listen to old episodes. You can see who's going to be on new episodes and what books we're going to read. And I'm doing blogs about every episode now, little blog post things. It should be cool. Booksocietypod.com. One of the best ways to work on a poem initially and in revision is to read it aloud to yourself, which means if you're like me and you like to work at coffee shops, you are the person muttering to yourself in public. And if you just become like the town poet, they get it and they're fine with it. And they'll just refill your coffee and leave you alone. Mm -hmm.